How does one chronicle our times, these incredible, banal, traumatic days in which we live? So much important seems to take place and so much unimportant that is made important. Uh, perhaps of all the chroniclers who, who are capturing America of this moment in the 60s, my favorite is Tom Wolfe. You may recall Mr. Wolfe was our guest last time when the candy-colored tangerine flake Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby came. I was six, I didn't realize it was 1965 time. Yeah, and I give awards now to people who can still say that whole title. <laughs> and now yeah. two books at the same time, both came out, all, all both published by Farrar. It's Farrar, isn't it? Isn't it Farrar? Yeah, Strauss and Giraud. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. uh, one, I think, is a masterpiece. It's the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, a study of Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but more than that, a study of, well, perhaps we can talk about that with Tom Wolfe. And the other collection of a variety of essays called The Pump House Gang and, and other gangs. Both would begin with the electric Kool-Aid acid test. I remember the last time you were talking almost about a subculture, the last time you were on, uh, that there is no one pattern in America. And you were exploring the hot rodders, the motorcycle kids, the, uh, the quote-unquote beautiful people. All that is seemingly banal truly is banal. And in your exploration, Tom, you're showing us so much integrally a part of our whole society today, isn't it? Well, it wasn't long after I talked to you that I went out to California, uh, and I ran into this funny situation there. Uh, this, what I call age uh, age segregation was going on. They, uh, there were not only were there these housing developments I think are fairly well known about uh, people only people 45 and older can buy into these places. Uh, but there was also apartment hotels for people 20 to 30. The uh, Sunset Strip, which is sort of like the Times Square of Los Angeles, had become a teenage preserve. Uh, people really 16 to 25. There were clubs there that you had to be 25. You had to be under 25 to get in the club. And this is pretty hard on girls. I never realized this until I saw it happen to a girl. She was there with her date. And they were going into this club, and suddenly they were stopped at the door and challenged, not to prove that they were over 21, but that they were under 25. And so, now you see, there's no way a girl can win that argument. Yeah. I mean, if she, even if she has identification, the fact has been established she doesn't look under 25 by being Anyway. It, uh, well, it's, by the <laughs> way, this particular point you're making is described so in, in, Wolfian, in Wolfian ways, too. In your, in your essay, The Pump House Gang, in this book, you have the scene, the girl and her boyfriend, a place called The Boss. Isn't that the one? The scene where she has to show her ID card that she's under yeah, 20, yeah, and yeah, nothing, yeah. as Tom says, nothing <clears throat> to make a woman look stupid and then to stand up around trying to argue, I'm younger than I look, I'm younger than I look. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a terrible thing for a woman today, I tell you. Um, eventually, you know, there was a kind of a battle over the strip. There was practically a, on the barricades insurrection of. <clears throat> this had nothing to do with new left politics or anything. The kids just wanted the strip. They were being rousted off of it by the cops there. And then I, I got down to La Jolla, California, and here were these surfing, surfing kids who were uh, living completely within a world of people 16 or, well, about 22. They were living in garages among, uh, well, just among themselves, boys and girls. They were kind of uh, boosting furniture to, to uh, furnish these places. And, uh, they were having quite a time for themselves, had their own hairstyles, their own clothing styles, and everything. Well, this was all a forerunner of the still more incredible phenomenon of the, of the hippies. Um, although when I started work on, to do work on the electric Kool-Aid acid test on Ken Kesey and his group, there wasn't even such a word as hippies. Yeah. 
So perhaps, you know, California seems to be uh, one of the seedbeds of what happened because of the nature of the state itself. I suppose all the new migrants who came in and everything was beginning anew there, both nutty and, uh, and well, good. I look at Southern California as the only American state because it's a double migration that's taking place there often. A lot of people and their families have moved from the East Coast to the, either the Middle West or the Southwest, and then from there to Southern California. And by the time this double migration has taken place, all the, that old American, uh, the European baggage is gone. And they are doing a completely American thing. And that was one thing that fascinated me about Ken Kesey and his group was that even though they were into the, this whole psychedelic business, they were completely American. They loved uh, uh, hamburgers. They, called it, they had this whole idea of the rat life. And they called them rat burgers, and they liked rat burgers and rat drive-ins and rat this and rat that. And uh, they used to use American flags as decorations. It was partly a put-on, but it was also... Uh, they, just, they liked all the neon, all the highways. And they were touching upon both books of uh, Tom <coughs> Wolfe here, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and The Pump House Gang and other sort of interrelated... Uh, the perhaps of the two, for the moment, if we could for the, emphasize or concentrate on the Ken Kesey work, which is a strange kind of saga. And the style of Wolf, by the way, is one that captures the style of Kesey and his group. Just for those in the audience, you know, Ken Kesey first came to public uh, light with a, an excellent novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right, yeah. And this deals with a, uh, an asylum. How'd this come about, his writing of it? You mentioned it very, very vividly, too, uh, the he, manner of his <clears throat> writing this. Kesey had, was at this, in the Stanford Creative Writing Program at that time, and he was working on a novel called Zoo, which is to be about North Beach, the old, is no longer really, the bohemian quarter of San Francisco. And actually, Kesey didn't really know much about North Beach when you got right down to it. He was at Stanford, it was 40 miles down the road, but North Beach was sort of, I guess, the kind of thing it looked like you wrote about. Anyway, he had a friend who was in the psychology department at Stanford and was working in a veterans hospital in Menlo Park. It was right, outside of Palo, right next to Palo Alto. And he gave Keyes the idea of taking a job uh, on the psychiatric ward at night. And the idea being that he could make some money, and there was not much happening on the wards at night, and he could write. And at the same time, he could learn something about the psychiatric ward. Because by this time, Kesey had participated in some experiments that were being done there at this veterans hospital uh, with LSD. And this was really before the word was used by anybody. There was just this drug that they were trying to find volunteers to take it, plus some other things uh, that I've never heard of since, IT-290. and uh, It was all a big, these were sort of mysterious substances that at the time, the experimenters thought would produce a state that resembled a psychosis, and they thought they could learn about mental illness by giving people LSD. So he had gotten interested in this whole subject. So he was sitting on this, going to work on this ward. Well, finally, he got so engrossed in the life on the, in the psychiatric ward, it was a men's psychiatric ward for veterans, that he just forgot about this novel, Zoo, which he was sort of writing by remote control anyway. And he just sat down and started writing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which really embodied a lot of his outrage at the way he saw mental patients being treated. Uh, he just saw them being, in effect, tranquilized out of their skulls. They were just given, they were, in effect, doped up all day yeah. just so they'd keep quiet. Yeah. 
And this really outraged me because Kesey actually comes from a, a kind of a very much the old style frontier Protestant background. Up in Oregon. Up in Oregon. His father, whom he's very close to, uh, was somebody who always pushed his sons uh, to taste, I mean, to force them to, to get some kind of physical courage or just confront nature to hunt and fish and all these things. And the idea that to, to Kesey, I think basically the, the way did you overcome mental illness and anything else was to just force yourself out of what you're in rather than mm. being stupefied. This is anyway, so he got, in, yeah. he, he got into all that. But as you're telling this, <coughs> this is very fascinating because many things come to mind. You said zoo, and I started associating. I put a crazy note here, zoo story, because Kesey, the central figure, McMurphy, yeah. through his own sacrifice, uh, this man frees the others. He right. frees the others, but he himself becomes the sacrificial lamb. Right. And, free. Right. and in Zeus' story, Albee was saying that Jerry, the hip kid, actually made that man on the bench come alive. The man was dead, this establishment ad guy, in his own death. But the guy in killing him came alive. So in a strange way, there's a relationship here. You know? Yeah, I never thought of yeah. that. Uh, no, Zoo made me think. It's of hard that. for me to think yeah. of a relationship between the mental atmosphere of Kesey and, yeah. and Albee, but... Mm -hmm. uh, in that sense, you're I'm thinking about right. the zoo story, yeah, and yeah. but coming back to Kesey himself. So here's someone who came from a rather conventional background, a frontier outdoorsman background, and a transformation of him. Yeah, this is you know this gets down to a subject that I keep I hear about everywhere I go. There's just a lot of people worried about the generation gap. God, this term is being flung around. Of course right? it is. Uh, and also known as the communication gap, idea being that nobody can speak across this great abyss yeah. between the generations. And people tend to approach it through um, what I think of as a pathological approach. They, they always, parents particularly will say, if their child has become, a, say, a hippie or a, a member of the new left or whatever it may be, they say, well, God, what have we done wrong? We must be, there must be something wrong with us. Or there must be something wrong with the school system. Or there must be something wrong with our society. We're in a sick society. God, this is just terrible stuff. And I even, when I started working on the, this book, and I met Kesey, and I met the Merry Pranksters, his group, his commune, I was looking for a pattern, pathological pattern. I said, well, now, maybe they're all from divorced homes. And I'd go around, and, well, one or two were, but one or two, you know, in fact, in any room full of, uh, of yeah. uh, 20 people, there might liable to be a couple that of people from it. broken homes. Uh, I was looking for a psychiatric background, maybe. Well, one or two had seen psychiatrists. But I don't think that's too uncommon either. And finally, I realized that the explanation wasn't there, and particularly in the case of someone like Kesey. He couldn't have had a more stable background. I mean, it was a picture book background. The, the, you know, the, if his father didn't drink or smoke, his father was a self-made, uh, he was an entrepreneur who came from the Southwest to Oregon during the, uh, in the, in the 40s, made a, he was one of the most successful businessmen in the uh, Willamette Valley. Kesey was a star athlete in high school and in college. He was a, uh, one of the great college wrestlers in uh, the Northwest. He was a, an A student. He, got a, he has a graduate degree from, uh, from Stanford he got after that. He was an actor. Uh, he was most voted in high school, most likely to succeed. I don't know, there's just, totally he, told, he loves his family. His family loves him. He's, he was married, he has three uh, beautiful kids. And so the, 
you couldn't yeah. look point to this guy yeah. and, and say there's something in his background that accounts for very bizarre behavior. Course, you have to look is, at something else. This becomes the, the basis then of this, mm -hmm. uh, I call it saga, the Tom Wolfe wrote, uh, this, the, uh, the Kool-Aid acid test. The, so how did you become an out? Kesey, since something happened to Kesey, he became almost the leader of the cult. In fact, Haight-Ashbury itself came about to some extent because of him, and finally a fugitive, and finally uh, uh, serving time, and now back to origins again. Well, suppose we start then. You yourself, because you're writing. You were there. You became right almost in the middle of it there. The observer, at the same time, you're almost participant. You're observer. Yeah, it's... Uh well, everything that I had tried to learn about doing this kind of thing in the shorter pieces I had done in the Candy Color, Tangerine Flakes, June Love, it was really put to the, the test in doing this thing because all the problems uh, came up. I, I first heard about Kesey as re in connection with psychedelics and all the rest of it. Um, when I got some, some letters he had written from Mexico were sent to me. That's when he was a fugitive. And he was a fugitive. This was after his second arrest for possession of marijuana, which in California carries, at that time anyway, it carried an automatic five-year prison term with no possibility of parole. So he just fled the country after the second arrest. And he wrote some letters to Larry McMurtry, who wrote Horseman Pass By, the book that the movie HUD was made from. And he, McMurtry had been at Stanford with Kesey, and Kesey was writing him these letters. And I happened to see some copies. A friend of Kesey sent me copies of these letters, which were wild letters. They were full of paranoia, but at the same time, they were very funny. And he was very fearful for his own safety. At the same time, he was laughing at himself in a way and at being in this mess and also wondering just what had happened to him because he had everything. You know, He was a very successful novelist, and the future seemed to be just opening up for him. And suddenly, here he was... A, couldn't go back into his own country. And I must say, at, the, at that point, I really just wanted to do, a, out of st strictly journalistic motives, a piece on a fugitive, because you turn on the TV, you know, and there were all these fugitive programs. Mm -hmm. There was one called Fugitive, and there was Son of Fugitive, and Hair Cut Off Fugitive, and, you know, and they were all stolen from Les Miserables, anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was a real-life fugitive, and this guy was doing a pretty good job of it, running from the FBI and everybody else. So I was going to go down to Mexico and try to find him. And by the time I figured out where he was down there, he had come back into the country, was arrested by the FBI out in San Francisco. And so I went out there, and still with the idea of just doing a story on a fugitive. And then I'd be gradually, once I got to San Francisco, began to see that this incredible thing was taking place, this whole psychedelic movement, uh, was coming to a crisis, really. This was the fall of 66. It was coming into an existing kind of crisis. And I had never heard of it. Most people in the country hadn't heard of it. It was not until January. It's hard to believe. It's hard to me to believe this. But it wasn't until January of 1967 that the word hippie even came into the language. It's incredible. So all this has happened. As you're talking now, a sudden thought occurs. You know, that time, everything happened so quickly. It's only a year, a year or so old, yeah, two yeah. years old at most. I, you know, yeah. Generations don't last very no. long now. I've been through about six generations yeah. in the last seven years. You know, there was, a, there was the silent generation, the beat generation, and the 
the lost generation and the flower generation. You call this the probation the, generation. And then, now in the probation generation. Yeah. Every kid you meet's on probation. <laughs> and after after the last couple of weeks in Chicago, just think of how many kids will be on probation. Yeah. So you oh, come in back. Oh, jug. I don't know which. Come back. Come <clears> back. <throat> Here again, you see. Uh, it was beyond political, even though we're talking about a convention. Politics was there, but you're you're telling us too, and your observations and your writings tell us that it's over and beyond this. Sunset Strip has nothing to do with politics, right. and throughout. So there's obviously a split that's here. But how about you? So it was a fugitive. Now, did you use flashback? Or now comes the story of the merry pranksters on this incredible trip on this bus. The yeah. bus now becomes the vehicle. What you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, as I got more and more, as I began to see that they what. The Kesey's adventures had involved the whole. Kesey and his group had really been the founders of the whole psychedelic movement. They were the people who really started everything that became Haight Ashbury and uh, the psychedelic costumery and designs and posters and all the rest of it. And I began to try to piece this thing together. And this presented a, quite a technical problem in writing because I was coming in me personally, uh, on the scene, towards the end of the, of the saga. And usually everything I had written, I had made a, a big point of being present at practically everything that I wrote about. Uh, this had always been very Im important to me, but now suddenly I had to piece together um, a, lot of, a lot of time, what a lot of narrative. In the past. Right. Uh, although I was pr on hand for the what became the absolute roaring climax of the whole thing uh, in the next five or six weeks there in San Francisco. We'll come to that, the chase. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So uh, I found that my task wasn't impossible because Kesey and his group had, unlike any other group of people I ever ran to in my life, had been recording their own lives in great detail, using tapes, videotapes, movies, uh, also more conventional stuff, diaries, letters. They just sort of had this variable lag theory of living that you, everything you did, you recorded instantly and kind of played back in variable lag. Sometimes they literally played back what they were saying. So as though they were <coughs> playing roles, all that, as though they were actors all the time, they, consciously. They saw themselves, they had a great theory of the movie. They saw themselves as actors in a science fiction movie. All the things that they were doing. At the same time, they were actually taking a movie <laughs> with a, a great big movie camera of what they were doing. And so this word movie was on many levels. And also the word movie had a psychological meaning to them. The, Eric Byrne, you know, has this theory of life scripts. Well, they hit upon the same idea by um, independently of uh, Eric Byrne, the idea that everybody, that most people are playing out a script. They have an idea of themselves, consciously or unconsciously, and many times their reaction to a, a situation has no, is not based in reality at all. It's based upon their script that they have yeah. just sort of drilled into their brains as the way they ought to act. So they had this idea going. So it seemed, finally it seemed only natural that they should actually just record uh, everything. So I had this wealth of of material, I could actually from the recordings, from the recordings, yeah. and from tapes, and also I did a lot of uh, talking to people, a lot of talking to people, uh, just endless uh, interviews of people, and I found that with this kind of material, 
that I could go into the past and recreate it the same way a novelist does. Uh, I don't think there's any techniques that a novelist can use that were forbidden to me in this situation. I even used interior monologues and with, without having to stretch anything because, for example, in the section on Mexico, a lot of that was drawn from Kesey's own letters uh, in which he is describing the mental state he's in while he's there. At other places, there would be people describing on tapes or in conversation with me how they felt at a certain moment. And I finally saw that rather than dropping back like you conventionally do in nonfiction and saying, um, at this point, I asked so-and-so what he thought about this, and he told me this, and which really takes you out of the story. I just put the thoughts right in there. Well, of course, what's, what's fantastic <clears throat> about uh, the electric coolant acid test and Tom Wolfe, uh, my guest this morning, is that this does have the feeling of a novel. It's all true. At the same time, you as a creative person, you were not just a journalist. You were in the middle. You were going back into past. You had the tapes, but also you yourself are creative, you see. And so it has a feeling of a novel, and yet every aspect of it is true. So it's, I don't want to use the phrase new <coughs> form here, but it, it, it jumps. Perhaps, as yeah. you audience knows, Red Tom, of his writing jumps off the page. Well, I worried about technique a lot when I started this, and at one point I was going to, I had this phrase in my mind which had been kicking around the, you know, the nonfiction novel, which we've heard about since Truman Capote's book. But then I found that even that, even to think of something in just those terms is constraining because Capote really was just trying to fulfill all of the rules set down by Henry James back in 18-whatever uh, about point of view and setting a scene and so forth, which is, can work very well up to a point. But finally, I think sometimes you get into a a situation in your writing where you can't even, you have to break those rules. And you finally have to get into the frame of mind where you're willing to break any rule. And so I finally really got going on this book and was getting to the point where I could write 10 and sometimes 20 pages a day, typewritten pages. Uh, you could do that many, yeah. When I was really going yeah, hot, yeah, uh, yeah. I wrote a lot of this book down in Virginia I went down, and just in the space of four months. And I found that when it was really going well, I didn't have to think anymore about that kind of what form I was writing in. It just, uh, if where I could do it in a scene, setting up a scene, describing a scene, I did that. And it's, most of the book is probably done that way. With the, and with dialogue, where I had the dialogue, I just ran it. But other places, if it was time to just sit down and, and just sort of say something very straight out, I think, exposition, well, I found it was much more comfortable just to do it rather than to try to, you know, the, the, the Henry James method is you've got to find a character to come on the scene and say, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, what you're trying to say as just exposition, which is pretty phony stuff. And, you know, why not just say yeah. it? You know, get it over with. Nobody's going to hate you for <laughs> saying right. it in a simple way. Also, I found that sometimes there'd be a narrative section that really wasn't very exciting, but it, was, it had to be in there, like how Kesey got from the border in Brownsville, Texas, back to San Francisco, and he was sneaking in back in the country. Well, it's not too interesting that the succession of hitchhiking rides and buses and things that he took up. I turned it into a poem. I did this at several yeah, places. It's in here, probably. And Perhaps uh, you could read that later. We have that. You know, this is, this is, uh, <clears throat> so the forms you took, it didn't matter. You weren't worried about, you weren't worried about a specific form. There's something, there's an event you want to tell about and the humans involved with it. Simple as that. And uh, one great thing about the 
Kesey's adventures was. It, they, just as I, they had an idea of themselves as being in a movie, their story really fell into a very natural plot line. You have Kesey as the graduate student dabbling in LSD and becoming more and more obsessed with what he thought LSD could do for him. And then you have him moving to La Honda, California, out in the woods, and setting up on purpose a kind of little a commune and just waiting for people to move in, the followers, in effect. And then you have them gathering and beginning to experiment more and more with these drugs. Then there's this incredible bus trip that they took across the country in 1964 from California to New York and back, in which they were, uh, they were... Describe that bus. You call it the Hieronymus, the Hieronymus Bush bus. Yeah. Uh, this bus, it's an, almost an allegory, the trip itself. By the way, I should like to point out the audience, this is more. In reading Tom Wolfe's book, it's more than just a story of psychedelia here. And he seems to be a group of people looking for a certain kind of joy they can't find in this reality world. And this bus trip almost is a, almost is a Don, I was trying to say that, a Don Quixote quality as though the Don were looking, yeah, but it was yeah. out of his context. In a way, they were too, it seems. Well, they were, had a kind of double vision of what they were gonna do on this trip, I think. Uh, they had this big 1939 International Harvest school bus, which they had bought from a man in Menlo Park who had 11 children. He had this bus fixed up for living, so he'd take his family on trips and everything. So they bought this thing for $1,500, and it was a yellow school bus, but they painted it in in a lot of wild colors, uh, which now are pretty standard psychedelic designs and everything. But it was and pretty wild. Yeah, and from it and rock they, yeah, they from wired it. the thing up completely with uh, tapes and amplifiers and speakers, and uh, they played rock and roll, and they could play their own music, or they could just broadcast from within the bus over microphones. And then they started putting on stranger and stranger costumes as they headed out across the country. And, they seem to want to both uh, shock the multitudes and record the multitudes. They, were, they had all this equipment for taking movies and, and tapes. And they were going to make a movie of America by going out into, uh, into the highways and byways and just taking pictures. It was actually a great idea, very spontaneously, see, so there'd be nothing planned. But what happened is also the effect on the townspeople, the various towns, leading sort of conventional lives. And You know, if we could just read this one piece, you do Kesey, and I'll be this, this gas station attendant guy. It almost tells a story, doesn't it? Uh, they're coming in, and the strange bus and uh, black music is coming out of the speakers and, and this wild psychedelic bus and the strange people into a gas station and they want to use the restrooms. And the guy says, now wait a minute. This guy, well, what do you think you're doing? Kesey yeah, says. Yeah. Fill her up, says Kesey. Uh, yes, sir, she's a big bus and she takes a lot of gas, yep. I mean, what, what are they doing? Them, I expect they're going to the bathroom, eh? Yeah, that big old thing's the worst gas eater you ever saw. And all the time, you see, he's got this... Yeah. Um, camera and the mic going. He's got this camera and microphone. That's well, can all, well, can all those people use the bath... Well... Can't all those people use the bathrooms, you know, the guy says. Yeah. Well, all they want to do is go to the bathroom. Uh... And then he's shooting the film on the mic, and the guy says, and the guy gets mad. He says, now you ain't going to use the bathroom, you hear me? You see the motel back? I own that motel. I got a septic tank. And he's thinking about the daily life. And here and then, you're not going to overflow it. Now get that thing, now get that thing out of my face, the camera, I suppose, and the mic. And the mic, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so Keezy, you see, would have uh, 
has this thing right in the guy's face, and he says, you see that, see that bus out there? Every time we stop to fill her up, we have to lay a whole lot of money on somebody, and we'd like it to be you on account of your hospitality. <laughs> and then his friend says, I'm a cannibal adventure and consumer. Well, get those cameras and microphones out of here. I'm not afraid of you, and that's rather interesting. I think, what happened? Was there also a strange kind of fear, too, on the part of the straight mm. arrows or the townspeople? Obviously, something goes Obviously, people of another world were yeah. coming in. And you have to remember that this was all completely unknown to the country at this time. And in 64, uh, Leary, Timothy Leary was very well known then as the Harvard PhD who had been kicked out of Harvard for uh, running experiments with LSD on undergraduates. But this whole idea of there being a life built around this drug uh, was not a was not common knowledge at all. In fact, there were only two groups at that time. One was Kesey's, the ones on this bus trip, mm -hmm. and uh, the other was Leary's up in Millbrook, New York, but they were very much sequestered up in Millbrook and didn't go out. In the, tell a funny the story there, how they were sort of snubbed a bit there, that yeah. this time Leary becomes something part of the establishment in a way, you know, more... Well, uh, well you know, Kesey and his group, they, they, made, they completed this trip and they got to New York. And... They'd had a lot of fun along the way, and they had upset and shocked a lot of people, and a number of people had become interested in what they were doing. So they knew about Leary, of course, and they wanted to have a meeting. They wanted to go to Millbrook and meet Leary. They, uh, Kesey had never met Leary, and the Mary Princes wanted to meet Leary's commune. And at this time, they, they were like two very esoteric secret societies um, because there was no way that anybody, even if they tried to, they couldn't have really told people what they were doing because nobody knew much about LSD at that point. So they went up to Millbrook and the Pranksters really wanted to turn it on to come into Millbrook. They thought they would just, that Millbrook would love them. So they had the bus repainted and rewired, more music, and they got on their best costumes and they went roaring up into Millbrook up this old country lane and they started throwing green smoke bombs off the top of the bus to sort of celebrate their own arrival. They thought that everyone in Leary's group would come running out of this big mansion with open arms, cheering, uh, because it was like, you know, the survivors of Khartoum, the only the last uh, comrades in arms in this wilderness of uh, conventional people. Well, in fact, they pull up to this big house, and there are a couple of people in the yard. They take one look at this bus, and they run inside. And there's nothing there. It's just stillness. Finally, a few people from Leary's group come out, and, and it's obviously that they're, they give them this kind of cool hospitality. This could be a suburban couple. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, it's sort of, you know, it's the typical un unexpected, unwanted guest has arrived, you see. And very quickly it became clear to Kesey and his group that to the Leary and entourage, they, the Kesey group, were like college pranksters or uh, California kooks and that they didn't want to run. Because this, by this time, Leary had been searching for a religious form to put his ideas about LSD and whatnot in. And he had chosen, he had done something really fairly conventional. He had chosen Buddhism, Hinduism, the whole Oriental thing. Uh, I, th I look at that as a typical intellectual, American intellectual exercise because it, there was a time when people maybe looked to France. Everyone says, boy, they really know how to live in France. They're, they've got the right attitude yeah. there, and we are a bunch of barbarians. You'd like this a time, a comment of two Indian poets who've been on the program to distinguish Indian poets who were laughing at the leap to the east. And, you know, it'd be, it w I wouldn't mind it too much if they knew their own culture first. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coming, coming back, so here you have 
uh, role-playing has now ceased. It seems a new role by the Learyites and could not accept the far-out people. But then you also describe the people on the bus, the various characters in your book, incredible descriptions of all of them. Uh, the kid, Sandy, Sandy Lehmannhaupt, I know his brother is a uh, reviews for the New York Times. But Sandy Lehmannhaupt, the ambivalence of him, he wanted to get off the bus, he was disturbed. <clears throat> At the same time, he couldn't get off. The bus, in a sense, was life to him, wasn't it? I think this is, in a way, a, a, <coughs> uh, although Sandy's far from being a typical person, he's a very extraordinary person, um, his ambivalence is typical about, I think, many people who are, have been involved in say the psychedelic life there's one side of it apparently has been very appealing to them and another side has been very frightening and Sandy definitely had this love-hate to kind of relationship with the whole with the whole adventure and he, he got a lot out of one side of it on the other hand he was constantly literally literally wanting to get off the bus and metaphorically wanting to get off the bus you know the Kesey group finally had this expression you're either on the bus or off the bus. Which with was, us or against us, in a way, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, with us or against us, or under, uh, tuned in to yeah. the, uh, the, our whole philosophy, or not tuned in. And actually, Kesey always loved metaphors like that, that came straight out of the actual life they were leading, mm. and yet had some uh, other levels of, um, of meaning. And Sandy picked up the name. Everyone got a nickname on this bus trip. And Sandy's was Dismount, because he was constantly getting off the bus, literally, mm. when they'd stop somewhere, and wandering off, it would be time to leave. He was gone. They'd have to go find him. Well, finally, uh, it was time for Sandy to uh, to really get off the bus, and he had a he finally had a, he had a very bad time. Uh, he came back, point. didn't he? But then he, after, uh, as he very fully and freely told me about, it, and in a very sensitive way and with a really a novelist gift for recall he told me described to me how he really kind of cracked up finally just from the pressure of the uh, of this trip and the constant lack of sleep plus the drugs that uh, had been taken and even though he did have this uh, crack up and had to go back to New York there was still something so powerful in the experience here and something so, so unique that when he got well, he came right back to uh, uh, California. Because he used to the phrase here, he says, Sandy, says, I'll always be on the bus. Right, and that's I'll what that really always touched be me. always be on the bus. When I, and then he, you know, he, he came back again, he had some more bad, he had some more trouble with uh, uh, just that terrible psychic trauma of the whole thing, and uh, finally he was a kind of a tragic comic incident in which he went, came all the way down to Mexico and took back an Ampex, a very valuable Ampex machine that uh, Kesey and the pranksters had been using and, went and took it back to New York. And there was a big break there. But nevertheless, even though after all of this and many adventures, and when I finally talked to him the, the last time about all of this, he, as you say, he it was a memorable me. moment of his life. Probably. And he suddenly, he suddenly said, "You know, I'll always Isn't be." Isn't there the something bus. else you point out here, and very, very vividly, and uh, I say poetically, that Kesey also was trying to dig Sandy, and there was Sandy's. Sandy felt he was being pulled powerlessness, and Kesey, some of the word power came in. He was trying to make Sandy feel that he was somebody powerful. Yeah. He'd play games here, experiments, wouldn't he? If I recall that. 
Yeah, the he had there were games of uh, of actual games called with names like power. It was also techniques known as things like attention. The idea being that if somebody is sort of in very depressed or very shaken up emotionally, if just everybody will suddenly, everybody in his worldview can suddenly will suddenly close in and give him loving attention. Yeah. That this will do, and there's probably something psychologically sound in that notion. Um, if everyone will just sort of pour mm -hmm. love on the person, that this will do a whole lot towards uh, uh, towards healing them. And Kesey is a, was a very complicated person on that score. He he would go way out of his way to try to help someone who was in trouble. Like in the case of Sandy, they actually drew up this 12-page, half serious, half comic psychic brief. It was. Uh, when Sandy was having a lot of, uh, well, he was sort of cl close to breaking up, and he, they prepared this long brief for him, described all about him. It was a book they did by hand, all about mm -hmm. Sandy. Uh, just pictures and words and poems and everything else, and they would show this to him sort of as a gesture of how much they thought of him, plus playing these sort of psychological games which had been invented by people like Fritz Perls and others. Uh, and for days they were trying to, they were yeah. just concentrating everything on Sandy. At the same time, um, there was an element in Kesey of the will to power yeah. in the Nietzschean sense yeah. and the idea of controlling. He was in charge, always, he was in wasn't charge. he? Always in charge. I think he really sincerely wanted to be, one half of him, let's say, wanted to be the, what he called the non-navigator. He called himself the non-navigator. And the other half was very obviously realized that he was the navigator. Mm -hmm. And well, it's just sort of a little double think there. We all do a little double so think. So in a way, this, aside this trip being this <clears throat> wild, fantastic trip, it's also a study in power, too. It's a study in yeah. power, too. The girl, think of the various pilgrims, the pilgrims on this. Yeah. A girl, uh, the, each one, wholly different mountain girl, for example, attracted me. This girl who had a certain lusty, earthy mm -hmm. one, yet she's a... A uh, Poughkeepsie kid, as I remember, yeah, a middle uh, class. Is he again a breakaway? She comes from a very res respectable family in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, and she's a. I believe both her parents have, have are teachers, biologists, I believe, and she's a very bright girl herself, and she she had ended up in California working in a laboratory as a technician, biological laboratory. And she just, she, she met uh, Neil Cassidy, who was uh, the hero as Dean Moriarty of On the Road. And he was so often the driver of this bus, wasn't And he? then he, you know, it, was, it amazed me to suddenly find Neil Cassidy with Kesey. Uh, it was like bridging the 10 years between the beat generation and the... Um, and the probation generation. The probation generation, yes. Anyway, uh, she had run into Kesey through um, um, Cassidy, and she just completely entered into a, a new life at the age of 18 in, the, in this sort of psychedelic commune that Kesey had started out in the woods in, in La Honda. And again, it, was never, it wasn't really a, a break with her parents. You know, there wasn't, I never saw any evidence of them never speaking to each other again or anything like that. In fact, I think they even... I know her brother at least came out to see what she was doing, and, and, and it was all very friendly, but she was in effect just saying, well, this is what I do now. Yeah. And 
I used to live with you all, and now I do this. Almost as though there were a, a strange way of plural culture, a phrase for another yeah, context, the plural right. culture. Yeah, uh, right. There is this... I keep getting back to this, this point of the fact that there's something else for kids to do now. When I grew up, there were really only about four things you could do. You could... Uh, when you got to be about 21, you either could stay in school, if you could <laughs> manage to do it, or you could go to work, or you could live at home, or you could go in the army. I think that really covers all, every... I suppose you could get very sick or you could commit suicide. Yeah. But that really covers the only four viable options, let's say. And they all have great drawbacks. There's always somebody else telling you what to do. Let's say you go to work. Well, you're at the bottom of the job hierarchy, and it's going to be five or ten years before you can surface enough to breathe, do anything on your own if you ever do. And obviously the army and living at home and school all put you in this situation. And it's a difficult period anyway. Uh, a lot of things are nice about being 21, but a lot of things are bad too. You feel you don't feel very secure usually. You're pretty not you're not very confident of yourself. Well now, but you always had to make this choice. Well now today there is this fifth option, if you want to call it that, in which there is enough money floating around, one way or another, that a lot of kids can go into their own status sphere, their own subculture, their own little world, and it's a young. It's a completely a young people's universe. They can become, the most obvious thing is, is the hippie commune life. Of course, in the Pump House gang, you have this kid who brought that real estate and some uh, legionnaire type guy, some guy with room oh, yeah, get yeah, off yeah. this land. I says, you get off, it's mine, I own it. Yeah, that was Bruce Brown, Bruce Brown who yeah. uh, did uh, Endless Summer, you know. Um, it's also part of it, isn't it? Yeah, A new sure. sense of power in a way. And powerlessness, too. The, uh, let's see. The surfers, I like Bruce yeah. Brown, others I were doing this yeah. same kind of thing. But also it interests me that much of, I think, the attraction of the new left movements, SDS or whatever form it takes, is this idea of going off into your own statosphere or, or young people's world. Because when you're leading the new left life as a kid, or as if you're in college or something, it's not just a matter of maybe uh, every Saturday going to some kind of demonstration or uh, perhaps going to a, a lecture occasionally or listening to a speech. It's something you can do around the clock. And you do do it around the clock. And there are people you see every day. There's a life you lead. There's a dress. There's a style of dress. Um, there are even places that a lot of people in this whole thing live, say, in New York on Upper Riverside Drive. Um, and it becomes very attractive socially to have this kind of world to move into. And also determining, is it not, in contrast to the past where someone is telling you what to do, determining your way, yourself, right. too. And you set up this own value system for yourself, which is very important. And it doesn't matter what adults no. say about you, because you and your heart of hearts feel that they are wrong and you're right. And it's not like, uh, it's not like, say, a bunch of uh, outcasts who are despised and despise themselves because they're despised. It's more like the feeling of an elite group that uh, this particular world that we form for ourselves, whether it's a hippie or yeah, they, they, they might almost probably say, think in terms of vanguard <coughs> group too. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, the idea of yeah, being yeah, of being in the uh, what is in the vanguard. Yeah. And who's to say that yeah. for any of us who are older, if uh, if we had reached yeah. that age and anything was going wrong at all, this might have looked awfully attractive. You know, why should I have to beat my brains out in a s 
system in which I'm the bottom dog when I can just go right into another life. So in a sense, uh, Tom Wolf, <coughs> our guest, we're talking now about both books, really, both of which have been published simultaneously by Farrar, uh, Strauss, and Giraud, the, the Kool-Aid, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, this powerful work, almost a novel in form, yet it's a, his own form, Wolfian, that deals with the, with the search on the part of Kesey and his friends for something mm -hmm. The Search for Joy, and the other book, a collection of his essays, all very perceptive and very witty and very hilarious, too, by the way. Uh, the Pump House Gang and other, and other um, essay articles. But back to, did, it's a joy, I suppose, and yet there's a strange part in your book when the traveling out east also goes south. There's one spot where they encountered uh, the non-acid joy of black people. Uh, first, the black were hostile, Lake Pontchartrain, mm -hmm. uh, where I think much jazz came from that area and uh, the people were dancing, the black people, around the bus, and suddenly Kesey and his friends got scared. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, interesting. they, they did. They, that, they were... Uh, the real thing. They were in New Orleans, and they, it was very hot. It was in, must have been July of, of or late June of 64. And they uh, decided to take a small dose of LSD and ride the roller coaster, as a matter of fact, in an amusement park near there. So they did that, and the roller coaster got to be too much for them, I think. So they got off the roller coaster, and then they saw this lake, this big lake Pontchartrain, and they decided they'd just go swimming. It was so hot. So they were pretty high, and they drove up to this lake, and they didn't realize it was a segregated beach. And they had ended in the uh, black part. So they, but they just got off the bus. They put in their swimsuits, and they dove in, and suddenly they were in the water, surrounded by Negroes. And uh, the Negroes really made fun of them and were pretending like they were going to take them up on the beach and, and uh, cut them up. And uh, they were sort of having their sport with the white crazies uh, that had turned up, I think. And I think in a way they were also just testing them to yeah, see uh, well, how they oh, would here, take here. the situation they were in and just what they were all about. Well, finally, it was going, got to be so it was going very well. They had a lot of blues music on their uh, tape, the on their tapes on the bus, and they had these speakers on the outside of the bus. You see, and they were blaring this music out, and a lot of the colored people there liked it, and they started dancing. In fact, they were doing what the merry pranksters had always said the world should do. <laughs> uh, this to uh, me is a fascinating. They would join in, of course, join yeah. into the whole thing, uh, and not resist it, and not. Yeah. get offended and, and just lose inhibitions and, mm. and take part in this whole thing. And so suddenly the bus was surrounded by a very happy mob of dancing Negroes, dancing rock, you know, doing rock and roll dances and, and so forth. And this one fellow that was telling me the, about most of this, uh, also I saw parts of it in the movie they made, uh, was telling me how he was high on LSD and he looked out and every, for some reason, this particular time he had taken it, everything was turning orange uh, around him. But then as these Negroes began dancing, it started turning, everything started turning brown. And suddenly he had the fantasy that he was inside of an enormous intestine and that it was going into peristaltic contractions. And he was about to take a very bad uh, journey down through the alimentary tract. And they, apparently, Kesey had also begun to have his own uh, version of this of this feeling, and 
I think uh, I think perhaps you're right. You know, I really hadn't thought of it in well, those terms. I think perhaps you're right what? that this is really the lesson of that thing. That it was a, maybe a little too much. Well, uh, that's the point. Here came reaction. the natural to me. It hit me like a <clears throat> bang, like a lightning bolt. The idea that. Uh, here, Kesey is trying to make all the squares and all the towns joyous and uninhibited, so, and uh, they're using stimulants to do so themselves, you know. All of a sudden, the real joy comes <laughs> along, they get scared and run <laughs> off. You see, it was almost as though the Kesey were having an ersatz kind of joy. This is fan. Again, we refer to the insights of Wolf in this book and, and the writing, and also the religious throughout. There seems to be a religious aspect, but literally, the Unitarians invited. Kesey is almost a high priest mm. to perform a seven-day miracle. You have a sequence called the seven-day miracle. It was a Unitarian conference, I yeah, take it. Yeah. Again, Kesey took over, did he not? Yeah, he very literally took over that particular uh, conference. The, in a way, you know, you mentioned the, the role of the Negroes in that confrontation. It brings up a whole side of the psychedelic movement and a lot of movements that are going to take off from that in the future, I think. Uh, Things like uh, the Esalen Institute experiments in, I don't know, well, self-realization, human potential, this kind of thing. They're really aimed at middle-class people, basically. And the feeling that many people in a, who grow up, say, in a more or less bureaucratic atmosphere of people, say, you or your parents work for a bureaucracy and you've been in this atmosphere, there is something constricting about it, and there's this. Th there's a phrase the French have called nostalgia for the mud. Uh, the idea that you want to get back to something more basic than all of the artificial rules of uh, middle-class life, and there's certainly uh, there's a great vein of this in the country now, and I think it's going to get bigger and and bigger. So a lot of these things, like this, the abandon of the psychedelic life, have that kind of attraction. If you've if grown up in cons uh, very restricted surroundings or think you have, this can be very appealing not to, you know, to just throw off your, your, all your clothes of meta literally and metaphorically and, and just cut loose. Well, now to a Negro, this is not nearly so appealing. And there really haven't been too many Negroes in the psychedelic movement. Uh, why should a Negro, who in most cases uh, is trying to get up out of the the mud in a sense, why should he have nostalgia for it? Mm -hmm. Why should he want to live in a in a communal pad in Haight-Ashbury that is... Court poverty when poverty is his life. Right, right, right. right. And uh, now, the Unitarians as a group were really, I think, have always had a lot of this nostalgia for the mud in a sense. Um, they've been in the forefront of many liberal uh, uh, causes, and have been very independent thinkers, and also have been anti-bourgeois, and I mean in a wholly supportable way, in the sense that a man shouldn't be bourgeois; he should be first of all a man. This idea, which is all, which is all fine, and a lot of young Unitarian ministers, along about this time, 65, 1965, were becoming very concerned with the fact that young people we're no longer interested in the Unitarian Church, though, at least not the way they should be. Because the Unitarian Church, 100 years ago, was a very vital thing. I mean, that was, that was the intellectual vanguard in this country, was the Unitarian Church. Emerson and everything ties in. Trans right. um, it was, and that was what young, that was the uh, existentialism in a way. That was the existentialism of 100 years ago. Uh, it had that kind of a, uh, excitement around it. So these young ministers 
very bright guys. Uh, why should our church sort of dry on the vine? Why should it become like everybody else's church and something that young people really have no interest in? So they were exploring all sorts of things. Uh, one of the things they were doing is what some ministers in New York have done, try to bring art into the church. And actually, uh, a friend of mine, Bill Glenesque, Presbyterian minister over in Brooklyn Heights, has actually brought sculpture and dancing into the sanctuary, which is a grave violation, technically, of uh, Presbyterian uh, prohibitions against graven images and all the rest. Uh, but the idea is to bring some excitement, something that connects into religious life. So they were trying to find something that connected. And they had heard about Kesey, and a couple of the, the Unitarian ministers had gone to La Honda, to Kesey's commune, and become very excited by the way Kesey could reach almost anybody. By this time, he was had hooked up with the Hells Angels. And they f sort of felt if Kesey can make connection with the Hells Angels, and really apparently bring them into something peaceful, uh, the Angels really responded to what the uh, Kesey group was doing. Um, he must have something. So they thought they'd invite him to this conference they were having. Well, what they didn't realize was that Kesey decided to come with his whole group, the whole bus. So instead of just Kesey showing up to maybe participate in a few seminars and give his ideas of of living spontaneously. Uh, here was the whole group, and Kesey decided not to give lectures, although he did that too, as a matter of fact, but to really put on a sh spontaneous show with his whole group, to demonstrate the way you do this. Well, in the course of, of putting on the show, Kesey found that he was able to take over the convention, because eventually it was set up like most conventions, with, you know, we're going to have two speeches this morning and a seminar this afternoon, and then a little unsupervised free play from 4 to 5.30 and uh, then into the mess hall. Well, his group just started doing their thing, so to speak, and uh, took over the convention completely because in Kesey's terminology, he was sort of bringing, he was bringing the convention into their movie. And there is a principle there that, uh, that works. And that I think it was at this point that Kesey, when everything suddenly was revolving around the bus and the great issue of the convention became are you on or off the bus? Uh, I think Kesey began to see that he did have a kind of power of moving outside of his commune into um, other areas, yeah. other areas, and perhaps building up power. And it wasn't too long after this that he started the acid tests, which, well, you know, all of these discotheques and things now that have mixed media environments and they. They have rock and roll and, and the light shows. Light shows, and they flash movies on the wall and the dancing, and they'll even have day glow colors and all that kind of thing. It came directly out of these acid tests, which were m mixed media entertainments plus LSD. And at first, it was just a matter of everyone who knew about the purpose of this thing would um, would take LSD and go through this wild experience while they were high. Now. By this time, Kesey really did have a religious feeling that, and I, although he would never put it in so many words, and he'd probably be embarrassed to this day to have it put this way, uh, uh, he did have the traditional urge to extend his message of freedom through spontaneity and all the rest of it, uh, extend this to a much wider audience outside of just a, his own commune into the, into the world and to all people who would be receptive to it. And just like every religion, he set up a ceremony 
that would somehow recapture or try to recapture the ecstatic feeling that he and his group had had originally. And I think if you go back to any ceremonies of any church, this is the way they started. Certainly, you know, you read the, in uh, uh, St. Paul's epistles to, I forget exactly who, um, he's talking about the fact that the services are getting too wild. And he said, you've got to cut out that wine. Mm. There's just too much wine drinking going it's on interesting around mentioning uh, the service is getting too wild. St. Paul talking about this. Many theories, you know, Joan Littlewood, the British director, has this theory that Christ and the apostles and the disciples were all a dancing and joyous people. That it was not at all as ascetic, you know. It was the opposite. It was oh, I guess Dionysian. It's you know? entirely possible. You know, today we get the picture of all religious figures as these people who are in, dressed in white laundry. And <laughs> they're just very pure people. And uh, I'm really, I've been criticized uh, for making the comparison between these r religious movements of the past and, say, Kesey and his group, the idea being that the it's, it's really very almost blasphemous to compare their experience to that of uh, But didn't something others, happen? Uh, I was thinking, before we hear this marvelous fugitive story, and also the chase. The chase is out of Max and a shiny black <laughs> shoes, the symbol of authority in the police. But Kesey, in coming back, and after the, there's a trips festival involved in the coming and the beginnings of Haight-Ashbury, but coming back, he finally seemed to change, and all the young kids felt betrayed, the LSD kids. He finally gave up acid, did he not? Did well, he, this, uh, uh, again, is something that uh, Zoroaster went through, uh, t telling his followers to g give up uh, this homo water that was a great part of their religion. Uh, Kesey finally felt that if the experience that he and his group had had on the basis of taking, like using LSD and using that as a very experimental way, if this was going to have any value, lasting value, that eventually you had to reach a plateau of, uh, well, of a sort that you, didn't, you no longer had to keep taking a chemical. Not to ha you didn't have to keep taking a chemical. Needed no outside stimulants. Right. To, uh, to have the kind of uh, insights or powers that you had with the uh, stimulants. And I think it was a very sincere, he was accused of copping out on this point, but I, I disagree with that. I, it was a very sincere belief of his, and I think a very natural one. Uh, for one thing, people do get tired of taking LSD after a while. It's, too, it's just too, it's too powerful. We haven't talked here about the, um, uh, about the possible deleterious effects of it. This has been talking about well, a great deal, of course. Yeah. Uh, sure, but uh, anyway, yeah. uh, Kesey and his group had had, for the most part, experiences they liked with it. And Kesey said, now we've got to, we've got to make this, uh, the value, if it has a value, we've got, it's got to be permanent. We've got to reach a level where we don't have to keep on taking it. Now, he said, we've got to move on to the next step. Now, he never, he didn't know in his, really in his own, in any sort of thought out way what this next step would be. And, but he just had this concept that he and his whole group had to graduate from acid. That was the way he, you call that it. chapter the graduation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when he, he really reached this conclusion in Mexico, uh, Kesey told me that while they were in Mexico, they really junked it through. By this, he meant that they just ate all the tacos and they drank all the wine, they took all the LSD, smoked all the marijuana, they did everything, everything that you could 
that they wanted to do at any time they wanted to do something. They were really just kind of biding their time down there. And after doing this, which also goes back to some, some of the uh, Hindu cults who don't do this on purpose, try to burn themselves out by the age of 30 physically so that they will have no more appetites, no more carnal appetites, and they can become pure beings. I think maybe it's the left-handed Shakti who do this. Don't hold me to that. Being but being pure uh, philosophers or something. Or yeah, I mean, so... Removed from uh, fleshly needs. I think in a way, uh, there was a little of this, this concept of junking through uh, has this feeling. You know, instead of trying to f deny yourself junk, Kesey had this word junk that in embraced many, many things. It was a nice word. It wasn't just, you know, junkish commonly used to mean heroin. Well, he never fooled around with heroin, but he, would, he was using it to include everything from uh, LSD to uh, bubble bath. Uh, uh, all the things that you indulge yourselves, yourself with. He said his idea was that you couldn't just forbid people to, to use things. Uh, he said you had to junk it through, come out through the other, use so much and use a lot of it and come out through the other side so that you don't want it anymore for a different reason. And so when he came back to, at this point he came back to uh, San Francisco. He was arrested. He got out on bail finally. And now... This is for that hanging charge of possessing marijuana. Right, right. Um, so now here he was, after eight months in Mexico, he was back in San Francisco. While he was away, Haight-Ashbury had started. And it had started as a result of the Trips Festival of January, of eight months before, um, which itself was an outgrowth of these acid tests I was talking about. And... So Keyes' whole group had really set the whole lifestyle for Haight-Ashbury, but they hadn't been there while it built up. So suddenly he got back, and here was Haight-Ashbury, which was by this time a, probably a community of two or 3,000 people. Uh, sometimes you'd hear you know, that there were 15,000. Well, there was never anything like that among the hippie population. But, um, and they had a lot. They had a real messianic feeling there at that time. They, had, they all knew each other. Uh, this was l before Haight-Ashbury began to be full of, of pushers and dealers and uh, uh, boutique owners uh, who fit into that group there and uh, uh, all the rest of it. Well, it fully became fully commercialized. Yeah, too. right, right, right. Um, this is something that happens to Bohemia so yeah, fast now that if I, if I were in real estate, I'd go and start myself a nice Bohemia oh, it and cash in. happens in Chicago, every place, <laughs> old town, further north. Yeah. I'm sure this is has its opposite bumper. I think you just go in and paint the floors yeah. black and call them stu call the yeah. tenement studios and you're on your way. Once the artists uh, move in, the rents go. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the greatest tool uh, <laughs> real estate men have, <laughs> the artists. You were talking um, about Haight-Ashbury. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. he comes back, Kesey comes back, and here's Haight-Ashbury's all beginning to bloom. Again, this is before the most of us had ever heard of Haight-Ashbury. Again, that was early 67 that that started coming into it's the language too. It's hard to believe it was that recent. All had this one year and a half. Again, so uh, Haight-Ashbury was beginning to have a lot of communes that were flourishing. Uh, Chet Helms had uh, a commune called the Family Dog. There was one called the Russian Embassy. There was the Grateful Dead, a musical group. Um, there was the Calliope Company. All these groups there. And they really felt that the psychedelic movement was going to to take over the world. And as a matter of fact, that thing was so strong at that point and so unified 
in the sense that they all knew each other and were real believers and really were accomplishing many of their goals in the sense of being loving, not having the usual kind of competitions and so forth. That it really, it had a potential of spreading, certainly through young people at that point. Now, Kesey came back, and this immediately... I mean, when I had just one group, wasn't there this potential of loving and giving? Wouldn't you say the group, the diggers, perhaps were the... the I, I should have mentioned yeah. the diggers, yeah. I, I forgot them. This uh, the group that gave things. Yeah, they actually gave things away. Uh, when I first went to Haight-Ashbury, they had just started coming down to the edge of uh, Golden Gate Park and, and ladling out food to anybody that wanted to come along at 4.30 out of big milk cans. They were down there doing that. It was a pretty funny sight. And then Kesey came back, and suddenly the whole thing was thrown into a political crisis because Kesey decided to hold this acid graduation, which was his announcement to the psychedelic world. That now it was time to move on to this chemical-free psychedelic life that I was telling, that I was mentioning just a little earlier. Now, I was on hand as when one of the leaders of another group got into a big argument with Kesey about this. He said, you can't tell people this, Ken, because this Haight-Ashbury is full of a lot of kids who've just discovered that there is this wonderful door that they can, in their mind that they can open and that the world is so much more beautiful. You can't tell them to stop taking LSD because it's, it's their whole life. And Kesey's answer was very typical of his, practically everything he's done. He said, look, don't stop, don't tell me to stop being a pioneer. He said, if you want to stay behind and open up these doors for people over and over again, if Leary wants to do that, fine. But somebody's got to move ahead, and I say the way to move ahead is to, is to do, is to accomplish all of these things, make them permanent without uh, LSD. So now Kesey himself was the only really personally charismatic figure. There wasn't another person in the whole psychedelic world who had the personal magnetism of Kesey. You know, he's a big guy. He has, you know, he's impressive looking. He's very intelligent. He had a reputation as a, as a novelist, which uh, counted pretty heavily, even though such things were said not to count in the psychedelic world. Uh, he was the natural, I think, beyond all question, the natural leader. And this movement always lacked a natural leader. And it was felt that if he held this big rally, the acid graduation rally, that he would take over the whole thing. And at this point, the politics started. And it became just like the socialist movement in New York after World War, after the uh, triumph of the Russian Revolution in 1917. You know, you had the Dubinsky socialists. And the splinter groups. All right. the splinter groups, CP, uh, CPUSA, mm -hmm. parenthesis, Bolshevik, and all the rest of it. Uh, the, the same sort of thing started. It really was an argument over whose version of the message should prevail. Mm -hmm. Whose version of gospel. Whose version of gospel. Yeah. But when this happened, the, when the politics started, this, in a way, was uh, a kind of a committing suicide because in this, when you're talking, uh, when the thing is based on love, as it really was, and it's very genuine, when it was based on love and was based on lack of competition, based on a surrender of ego rather than the uh, thrusting forward of ego, this kind of politics was fatal, and it was fatal to the psychedelic movement as a movement. And they did block Kesey. They stopped him from uh, having... They meaning various other... Other uh, splinter groups, It's very yeah. funny to speak of power blocks yeah. and splinter groups. Splinter groups, yeah. it's very, very sad. And they, they did stop Kesey from having this big rally. 
And, but in so doing, they also stopped themselves uh, from this thing going forward as a movement. That's why it was ironic that when the hippie movement became such a national issue, which is really the following summer, spring, the, much of it was already over. In fact, most of it was already over as a movement. And what I think what the press tended to see in Haight-Ashbury the following year was the, a whole lot of the kind of kids who are attracted to McDougal Street in Greenwich Village or probably to uh, Old Town just by reputation. Mm -hmm. They've heard about this thing and they're going to they're gonna, gonna come there. But isn't this something, too, as you, before we not leave just yet because you've got to read part of the chase and the humor of authority, capital A and the shiny black shoes, most a max salad quality. Coming back to this tragic aspect, also commerce took mm -hmm. over too, didn't it, in all these areas? Uh, commerce oh, and hoods too, I suppose, too. I understand. I don't know personally much about the hoodlum element, but I understand there's a lot of that now in, uh, in Haight-Ashbury, so, so I've heard. I, so don't, much mean, I don't mean individual. I mean the idea of syndicate setups, I mean. The idea of when something is happening that's commercially hot, often this is the case. But yeah. commercial, it became so the, the ideal, and we're not talking now, we're not talking about the medical aspects mm -hmm. and how certain people are affected by LSD, uh, you know, deleteriously as well as other ways. We're talking about the, you're talking about the phenomenon yeah. itself. Well now, Kesey, you see, f in his group started all sorts of things. They started this mixed media discotheque style. They started the poster, art um, that is so prevalent everywhere now. They started, the group that they used in these acid tests, the Grateful Dead, really founded this sound that's known as acid rock, which is now with the Beatles. The Beatles got it into, well, I think if you could really just track it down, you see that it came directly from these acid tests, the whole thing of the Beatles. And you know the Beatles went off on their own movie, mm -hmm. this magical mystery tour. They got a school bus. They painted it funny colors. They all got in there and decided to make a very spontaneous movie by going across England rather than the USA. This uh, is a question. Do you think the Beatles knew of Kesey's bus? Well, I doubt if it came. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. But I think it may have been a simultaneous. Uh, you know, uh, it may have been independent thinking, possibly. Um, it's just. It is interesting that they did the very same yeah. thing, and for the same reasons, they wanted mm -hmm. to make a spontaneous <coughs> movie. Mm -hmm. And this was after they were into uh, the LSD scene. Uh, anyway, any, uh, Kesey and his group did start all of these, uh, these trends on their own. Now, these things were picked up by people who did them all better in a commercial sense than Kesey did. Uh, Bill Graham, a promoter out in San Francisco, Fillmore. Fillmore Auditorium, mm -hmm. he took the acid test format and turned it into a very popular, very successful dance hall genre. The, uh, Discotheques and nightclubs started on the basis of it. The poster art started. Many people have done the acid rock sound more successfully commercially than the uh, Grateful Dead have done it. And to all of this, Kesey would say, they know where it is, but they don't know what it is. And he was referring to the fact that there was, in everything that Kesey and his group did finally in the long run, there was this religious element. Uh, it wasn't just it wasn't just fun and games for them because along about three o'clock in these acid tests which went on all night, suddenly everything would get very serious and the whole tone, the, whole, the music, the sound level would come down and they would do various things like, which are common to other movements too, some of the 
peyote Indian cults have done the same thing of the holding of hands in a group and waiting for uh, various feelings or currents to come through and this sort of thing. But as you're, as you're talking now, this is with Tom Wolfe, the story of electric Kool-Aid acid test and the story of reach a search tree and the buses are searches, the Beatles are on a bus searching for some other way other than the accepted value, it seems so uh, bleak. Uh, there's also authority throughout. Authority seemed confused. You spoke of the generation gap. These are young people and authority older. But throughout, there is this authority kind of off balance all the time here. Whether it's the, whether it's the bus, originally the Mary practice going from town to town, or whether it's finally Kesey coming back and still evading the FBI and the cops. Being clandestine broadcasts and everything. You, well, the... Uh, in one, one sense, they would laugh at the authorities, but uh, in another, the authorities always have the power to, to hang them up rather seriously. And it finally, Kesey's whole adventures ended up in this ter terrific cops and robbers game. And he felt a little bitter about this. He felt, in a way, that the cops had forced him into their movie. And he would say, we, the pranksters, have been put making They've been bringing everybody else into our movie in the sense that they sort of took over that Unitarian Conference and other things that they managed to do. And he said, now I'm playing, the, I'm in the classic script of theirs, <laughs> running from these guys with my heart pounding and uh, too much adrenaline flowing. And uh, So here again, role playing. And so suddenly he becomes not the director of the film, but just a member of the cast. Yeah. But when he came, he did try to reverse that. Yeah. Um, when he came back into San Francisco and decided that he was going to become the in effect, the Scarlet Pimpernel, and he did some very funny things. And this, by this is hilarious. This cops and robbers game. This uh, next to the last chapter of the book, before the graduation, cops and robbers game is some of the broadcasts he was doing. It's very funny. Uh, they didn't know where it was coming from, did they? They thought, and he broadcast. He'd be on TV shows. He, too. he did a whole series of things. He came. He, <coughs> he sneaks back into the country, and he stayed in a friend's house in Palo Alto. At first, he was just hiding all the time. And then he said, you know, well, hell with this. Uh, this is pretty miserable stuff, living like this. Uh, he said, they're probably going to catch me eventually anyway, so I might as well turn this into something that I direct and, and with which I can make some kind of a point. So he decided to make these brazen public appearances, although he was sought by the FBI and the California police, and you know, say, here I am, and this is my message, and then disappear. He started out with... Uh, by appearing at a big rally of the first big love-in or sit-in or be-in, they were called in, in Golden Gate Park in October, early October 66. He appeared, um, walked through the crowd. Well, that didn't make too much of a ripple. Then he went to a, a kind of acid test in effect that was being held at San Francisco State College, and he broadcast from a, a hidden studio into that event, into this big hall. Mm -hmm. But uh, by the time he got the wire set up, it was about four in the morning. That didn't work out too well. But uh, then he appeared in the classroom at, uh, at Stanford, suddenly, addressed a class, and whoosh, he was gone. <laughs> then he had an interview on a, on a hillside with a, one of the leading writers for the San Francisco Chronicle. There was a big story in the papers over that. Is that with Ralph Gleason? No, no it was Donovan Best, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, then he decided on a really master ploy of and making a television appearance on one of the major stations. This would be, was going to be taped in secret and then put on a couple of days later. 
And after that, he was going to have this big acid graduation rally on Halloween, at which point he knew the place would be loaded with all sorts of plain clothesmen. Uh, he was going to come in costume. See, being Halloween, he could come in costume. And then at midnight, he was going to get on stage and make this address. And at the conclusion of the address, he was going to rip off his mask, and there he would be, Ken Kesey. Then he was, uh, there was going to be a rope lowered down through the ceiling, and he was going to climb this rope, and I'd throw a hole in the ceiling, in the roof. Up there would be a helicopter pilot who was his, his number one lieutenant, uh, a guy named Ken Babs, uh, had been...